It's my great pleasure today to be speaking with E. Michael Jones, Dr. E. Michael Jones. Dr. Jones was a uh, theology professor who quite courageously took a moral stand uh, when he was a young man uh, because his Catholic college and uh, place of employment refused to condemn abortion and as a man of principle Dr. Jones uh, resigned his uh, academic position and has been uh, since engaged in the culture war and publishes a magazine of the same name and I'm very honored to be able to speak uh, with Dr. Jones today uh, I enjoy all his uh, appearances so uh, Michael, I'm very happy to speak to you and I would like to talk about the role of uh, consciousness, the uh, mind-brain-body problem and how uh, we can fit this uh, or, or address this paradigm so that it may be of use to others who are perhaps struggling uh, in this difficult time. Right, right. Okay, well, let's, let's, just, uh, let's just start off. Uh, we'll talk about uh, consciousness, uh, consciousness and materialism, and then we can go wherever you want to go. I can talk about uh, libido dominandi because it kind of flows from that. The whole interesting intersection of sexuality, which seems to be uh, have one foot in consciousness and one foot in, in matter in a very profound way. Yes. So it could, we could slip into that uh, right from that discussion. Um, I'm happy to do that, and uh, I think it's important to sort of establish some uh, philosophical ground from which we can move from. And is it fair to say from what you just said that you have a, a dualistic view of uh, consciousness and how it uh, interacts with the body and the brain? And do you... Uh, how do you reconcile that with the uh, your own theological <laughs> uh, point? Isn't it? <laughs> oh. So let's we could start off with the position, the dualistic position, which I do not hold. So the okay. fir the first man to hold the dualistic position, I think, was Plato, and Plato said that the soul uh, resides in the body in the way that a pilot is in a ship. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I remember thinking about that. So we would we would say uh, you your soul is in your body in the way that you are in your automobile. You uh, you drive the automobile when when you when someone hits the fender uh, in an accident. You don't say ouch, though, although you may think that because of the money it's going to cost you or the hassle with your insurance. But you don't experience physical pain when somebody bumps into your car. Uh, well, you know, you could interject there and, uh, you know, modern neuroscience uh, doesn't see that much difference between psychic pain and physical pain. The same areas of the brain are active under the same conditions when we look at uh, fMRI scans. So, um, yeah, you, you know, it's uh, you extend. Actually, this is a good point that I'd like to bring up that you extend your body and your mind to objects around you. It's how we go about uh, tool learning, um, or it's a, it's a hypothesis for tool learning, language learning. Yeah, 
but let's not muddy uh, this, the the uh, discussion here because uh, as far as I know, you don't feel pain. Is your car parked outside your house right now? Yes. If someone were to kick your tires, you wouldn't feel it, would you? No, not unless I no. saw them. Okay, so it's different. So it's two different things. And this is uh, uh, Plato, the problem with Plato. Uh, Aristotle made an improvement on Plato when he said that the soul is the form of the body. That's a, that's a much more sophisticated understanding of the relationship here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so by form, he would mean first act. Okay. Uh, so so it, he said at one point, if the body were a hatchet, its soul would be chopping. If the body were an eye, its soul would be seeing. So now we're getting we're getting to some type of uh, relationship between action uh, and and uh, the relationship between the body. The, the soul informs the body. Uh, the soul is the principle of unity of the body. Uh, the principle of unity is not matter. It cannot be matter because every atom or every molecule is constantly coming into and going out of existence to the point where uh, after seven years, you don't have any of the matter that you had seven years ago, but you're still you, which means you still have that principle of unity. Well, I mean, there's an argument to be had about the actual fundamental fabric of reality and how how that impacts our understanding of consciousness and, you know, modern neuroscience theories uh, embrace the idea of the quantum realm uh, in order to, okay. um, yeah, and I, I, I'm not sure that um, I, I'm not sure I see the problem the way you're seeing it. The the continuity of biology as organized matter. Yeah, it sounds like materialism to me. Uh, what, what's that, the the uh, in the 18th century? Uh, Someone like uh, Julian de la Maitrie would say, he wrote the L'homme machine, the man a machine. And he said that uh, the brain, uh, the brain secretes thought. Is that what this man is saying? The brain secretes thought? Well, as, as a theorem, it, it would, it would postulate that consciousness is embedded at every level, such that even at the subatomic realm, the elements that are uh, formed into the components that make up the body, including the nervous tissue, has um, has consciousness baked in as part of the nature of reality. And it's as you sort of build it up into complexity, you see more and more consciousness. The consciousness essentially would appear to be on a slide rule or, or spectrum that with increasing complexity comes increasing uh, degrees of consciousness. Right. So matter is conscious. Uh, yes, I think that would be a fair way of yeah. stating the position yeah. right well, now. Well, that's materialism. Okay. I mean, it's just another way of saying what I just said, that ma- uh, the brain secretes thought. This, mm. m- this matter produces thought. That's not my position uh, at all. Okay. Uh, my position is, or my position, who cares what my position is? I'm trying to formulate the other side is basically that the brain is a necessary 
precondition for consciousness uh -huh. uh, in human beings. Now, I believe that there are uh, beings that have consciousness without bodies. And these creatures are called angels. So I think it's possible to have consciousness without a body. Uh, I think also after death, uh, the soul, uh, which is immortal, will have consciousness without a body. But the only way uh, uh, human beings can have consciousness is to be born, okay? In other words, to start off with a body and the body, uh, the brain becomes the condition, the necessary condition for consciousness, but it's not the same as consciousness. In other words, there is no consciousness in matter. Well, I, and listening, listening to your sort of opening uh, arguments there, I actually don't think there's that much difference between... Yes, I do. Yeah, that's... that's Yes, I, I do make. I do make. That's, there's clearly a distinction between animate and inanimate matter. Yes, of course there is. So, uh, in, in this sense, then, when you talk about uh, intermediaries that are not bound by matter that are consciousness, you're talking about angels and essentially their ability to intercede with matter and consciousness as we recognize it, between ourselves and basically act as an intermediary between ourselves and the one living God. Is, is that a fair, uh, fair assumption? Angelos, angelos is the Greek word for messenger. <clears throat> so they are inter intermediary beings between God and man, and they act as messengers. So in, in important points in human history, the angel announces what's going to happen. The most important, most significant would be the Annunciation, where the angel Gabriel announced to the Blessed Virgin that she was going to bear a son, and that would be the Messiah. So Angelus means messenger. They are intermediary beings. So they are rational, but not corporeal. Uh, but they are they are created rational beings. God is an uncreated rational being, uh, and man is a created rational being with a body. Uh, okay, so we we need to find a way to navigate between these uh, these different states of uh, being. Okay, if we don't want to use matter. As, as a referent. And it's, it seems to me that this is all very dependent upon um, how, th how that interaction takes place. Right? There, there must be, uh, there must be exchange is, of information. Now we're getting, into, we're getting into deep theology here, okay? Mm. The, 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 the Greeks uh, had an understanding of God. Uh, Aristotle's God was the unmoved mover, the uncaused cause and the unmoved mover. He lived in a completely eternal, atemporal realm. Mm. Now, and because of that, he could be the uncaused cause of all of, all of time, okay? Mm. You can't have an infinite regression. Aristotle talks about this in terms of the metaphysics. So he can be the basis of everything else because he's eternal, uh, but the question is, what is his relationship to time? What is his relationship to us, to beings that live in time? Well, Aristotle didn't know. And uh, Plato 
had already dealt with this issue, and Plato came up with a god that was imminent. So in order to be God, you have to be transcendent. If you're transcendent, you have no connection with the real with the world that we live in, the world of time. Mm. If that's the case, then there's no point in worshiping God, and nobody worships the first cause. It's clear. It simply is. Plato felt that there was some type of need for some type of uh, connection between man and God. All of mythology, all of the every every uh, human race, every ethnic group has a word for God. And implicit in this is you can appeal to God for cert for help, that there is a connection, that he created you, so therefore he, he was he'd be interested in what you're doing. So Plato took that part and he said that God was the demi-orgos, which means he's imminent. But if he's imminent, he's not in the realm, the transcendent realm. So he's not transcendent. So if he's not transcendent, he's not God. And this mm -hmm. is the, the dilemma that ended Greek philosophy. And yeah. so Christianity resolved this dilemma by saying that there are three persons in one God. It's called the Trinity. Mm -hmm. And uh, Origen, I believe one of the church fathers said that Jesus Christ is the demiorgos. The, that was Plato's term for, for God, the worker of the people. Um, I, I'm happy to discuss the Trinity. I'm happy to learn about it. Uh, the, the, the issue, and I don't have an issue. Again, I, I think that there's uh, an opportunity here to find common ground between sciences and theology, where we can define the uh, the entities, the elements that are involved, and we can uh, we can come together. Well, it's not even come together, but we can agree that we're we're essentially heading in the in the same direction for the for the goals that we're trying to achieve with right. respect to our understanding of conscious. Uh, of consciousness, sorry. So we, we consider, I would say, a priori consciousness is a fundamental. What exactly it is, science doesn't know. It's uh, it's straight up with admitting that. And also, it seems to me... It's the, order, it's the ordering principle of the universe, and it is common to both God and man. Yes. Yes, so it means that there has to be some uh, degree of interface, right? So, just to bring it down to the biological, it 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 makes sense that if you've got a neuron that wiggles your hand and fingers, you understand that there's distance and there's a whole process involved in turning the uh, the, the bioelectric currents into actual physical action we understand that there's the the, the the cause is radically different to the uh, the movement itself and they're separated by you know there are discrete boundaries between your skin your skin is a boundary condition to your uh, to your muscles to your nerves to your spinal cord to the functional part of your cortex and these are these are all separated and essentially abstracted right. out but there, there's yes. a line of there's a line of causality and connection between them and i would put, say that or posit that what you're suggesting is is that it's the same for consciousness from the uh, the principle of this higher uh, or, or what i would call a superordinate consciousness right. that that's embedded 
in in the higher dimensional constructs of reality. Now, exactly what those dimensions are, I'm I'm not a physicist, so I couldn't describe all of them. But we, you know, we understand spatial time, energetic, and it and it energetic. Yes, uh, God is God is a creator. He he, he is a, he created the entire universe out of love. Mm. So. Uh, there's a tradition that talks about love as as energy, hmm. uh, but the classical term would be love rather than energy. Energy is a form of work, but then again, creation is a form hmm. of work too. Hmm. Uh, now we're, go we're going. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry, I missed the last bit, but yeah, I agree, I agree with you. Um, again, I think we're we're talking about the same thing, just with a different uh, vernacular. Um, I think it it's eminently reasonable to think about love as being a force in the universe that we see manifested around us because look if you wanted to break down exactly what what we were we don't really know we can we can sort of say okay it's a collection of chemicals and uh, that forms proteins and fats and connective tissue but right. it, it's it's not um it's not it's not 100% there's ambiguity in in the scientific position and i think that's something that has to be recognized and i would hope that the same thing is recognized yeah. from the, yeah, the i think that that would that uh, that would be the classical i think the classical term for what you're referring to as energy that love would be a ma uh, energy would be a manifestation of god's love mm. uh, as creation is a manifestation of god's love mm. in other words it's an action an action which took place uh which was the beginning of everything Yes, and again, so this pulls us around to what what kicks the process off, and you can't. Well, you know, there's physicists. Uh, Krauss, I think, is I, I forget his first name right now, but uh, he's he would make the claim that uh, it's possible to create matter, there, and there then is, there is a dichotomy between the biblical narrative of creation and the scientific narrative. Mm -hmm. I, I have to I have to say that. And it has not been resolved. No one has resolved this. Mm. But I don't think it's insurmountable. So the, the, uh, when the church was pushed to do this uh, by the theories of evolution, largely by the theories of Teilhard de Chardin, who tried to uh, give evolution uh, a, a Christian kind of vocabulary, mm. um, the 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 pope uh, insisted on the fact that there was uh, all of mankind descended from two two people adam and eve and that, that was the beginning of the human race and he never put a time frame on it and if you look into the bible you will find that there they don't put a time frame on it either so we have a a, a genealogy that goes pretty much back to abraham uh -huh. and then before that it's not clear it's not clear what what the time frame is, uh, so I think that's as, that's as 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 close as we can we can do this. Now there are all kinds of things, anomalies, like um, soft marrow in Tyrannosaurus Rex bones that science cannot explain, given the the uh, the framework that they have, the time frame that they're working with. Mm. We just published an article uh, in Culture Wars called The Age of Catastrophe, which contests the whole idea of uniform time, that mm. there may have been some type of 
cataclysm where time accelerated or things turned around. What is time? What is time? <laughs> There's a, there, so we, we all function according to Aristotle's principle that time is the number of motion. So basically, time for us is giving some type of numeric value to the the movement of the planets, or mm. the movement of the sun and the earth, vis-a-vis -vis the earth. Whether the earth goes around the sun or the sun goes around the earth, that's what uh, the measure of time is. That's one measure. It's a simplification, but it may be an oversimplification. And it may and it, the presupposition is that time is uniform, and it has always been uniform. And that may also be a fallacious assumption as well. So I, I think that's as far, if you're going to talk about time, I think that's as far as I can take it. Um, well, I, I hopefully can extend that a little bit because I'm, I think um, current neuroscience, it's understood that we have a job to define subjective time. So other branches of science might have you know, come up with constants, Planck constant of time, right. uh, Planck constants of length, etc. But uh, right. it's absolutely obvious. It's obvious that when you're bored, time seems to slow down, and when you're having fun, time goes fast. It's obvious. It's mm. a psychological perception. Mm. If if we take the psychological perception as our basis of time, time is not uniform. I I agree. And so, and if we take the assumption that consciousness is a fundamental. It sits there at the base of reality. Then we can we can by induction. That's a that's a um, fair method to use in these in these types of metaphysical these um, philosophical debates. Make the make the contention that well, okay, if the subjective feeling of time can be variable, then perhaps it is and those changes phys physical constants that we we understand right now may be subject to change i mean i don't think it would take right. me long digging through the scientific literature to find uh, clues as to um or supporting circumstantial evidence for that being the case now um modern human beings have been around at least a few hundred thousand years and have lived side by side with other hominids. Now, how much of that plays into the biblical no, narrative? more than that. I mean, that, the whole problem with the Enlightenment is the reduction and truncation of all knowledge to science. And then everything else is kind of illusion uh, and mythology and all this other stuff. This is a crass kind of Enlightenment prejudice. And we're living through it right now with the COVID lockdown, where basically the scientist arrives on the scene and he tells you what is ultimate reality. And this, the, I have possession of ultimate reality and you have to do what I say. So it's a crude form of political control that it's obvious now, more obvious in England than it is in the United States, probably. Mm, well, <laughs> this, I speak about COVID a lot and I... I, I think there's multiple narratives here that we have to take in uh, into account. So first, your your first statement that um, because of the Enlightenment, we've we've gone to, we've gone so far with reductionism into reducto absurdism. Because and but the reason we've done that, it's been a powerful tool. But we know that doing that or, or taking animate matter 
breaking it down to its constituent parts and then trying to build it back up, we lose something of the essence. Okay, and in that in that essence, there's a um, there's a, a a way, a question, or, or, or a hypothesis that we could state in order in order to address or to say that we need to be, have more precision about how we address the human condition right now, especially under what looks like, well, as, you, as you put it, science, science abusing its authority. But I would, I would be careful here and say, okay, it's wrong that governments would be mandating masks onto people, but it's also wrong for people yeah. to be going too far and saying viruses don't exist when they very obviously do. And it seems very strange to me that the third narrative doesn't get traction at all, which is that the scientific establishment failed. We've had a serious right. leak. With American money. With American money, absolutely. And the thing is, there are multiple countries that have their fingerprints over this sticky hand grenade of, of uh, tar baby that is this gain of function research. Now, um, there's a lot of questions we could raise about what, you know, is it right to be doing that? And is it, is it ethical? And these are all important. Uh, these are all important points. And, you know, I find it funny that in talking about consciousness, already the conversation has been steered to what is the sort of preeminent uh, uh, event that's, that's guiding people's actions. But I, uh, um, I, I, for one, would use our dialogue to at least say, can we agree that there's a scientific basis for saying that there is something out there that I don't want to use we a weapon, right. Um, right. but dual-use yeah, technology? I, well, I, 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 didn't want, I didn't want to get into a discussion of COVID. I just wanted to put some type of limit on what we mean by science mm -hmm. uh, and 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 in the what we're talking about uh, uh, in our discussion the proper field is metaphysics yes yes uh, and and what you see I think throughout the discussion of issues like the big important issues mm. uh, you have the influence of Darwinism, and so what you have is people like Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens mm. using biology as a form of metaphysics. Yes, and I'm I'm not in disagreement with you about how they're using it and perhaps dismissing uh, a part of reality that we need more sophisticated tools, linguistic tools, uh, metaphysical, philosophical tools to um, make sure that we're advancing science in, in a way that's right. one, um, it's not incremental. You want to be making, you know, big jumps with, with your science and your philosophy. Because uh, I think once you get into incrementalism, um, this is where the rot begins to set in. And there, I do believe right. it can be guided by a proper um, theology. But the theology needs to be yeah, flexible it's, it's somewhat like, as well. Like, uh, the, the fundamental problem with Darwinism is the emergence of anything new uh, out of something that didn't exist. Mm. Par Par Parmenides said that which, uh, that which exists, that which is, that which is cannot come from that which is not. 
That is a fundamentally true statement. That is absolutely true. The problem immediately after that is, well, how do you account for change? Mm -hmm. It's obvious that we have change in this world. Yes. So you just created a world where nothing can change. Uh, and which he'd say, well, yes, in terms of being, nothing does change because everything either is or it is not. You can't have an addition to something that is because it already is. Uh, Aristotle solved that problem with uh, potentiality. But to get back to so, but th this is not the discussion that takes place with the Darwinists because the Darwinists are always telling you that that which is can come from that which is not. They have to say that because that's the essence of Darwinian evolution and they can't explain it. Well, and they don't even know that they can't explain it. Well, so, so, so Christopher Hitchens will say, the eye evolved from light-sensitive cells. Well, this is just sleight of hand. Uh, first of all, did those, those light-sensitive cells on some mythological proto-creature, could they see or not? Well, if they can see, it's already an eye. If they cannot, then the eye cannot evolve from that. It's that simple. I, I would interject there and say we need more subtlety in the uh in the dialogue because uh, like uh, i would i accept the premise that the that you know hardcore reductionist darwinism is has led to a dead end right and at at this point we have to look around and say we it it hasn't given us a good understanding of the the primary issue of the 21st century which is uh, our brain our body, our mind, our soul, and we need to find a way to um, a more comprehensive uh, science. So I I don't have a problem with ideation that says that you could, the system as it moves across time can um, build towards uh, more complexity. Right? So if you've got heat and you've got uh, the right conditions in that primordial ooze, then I, I, I don't have a problem with more complex biomolecules forming and aggregating under the right conditions. Now, it might some might say that you're arguing against the laws of entropy, yes, and I understand. Yes, I understand that. There, there are, there are uh, I don't know whether you've ever seen these signs. They used to be on newspaper buildings, you know, uh, and they'd have, they'd have the headlines kind of flash across, and it looked as if there were motion. There was no motion there. It was basically one light going off and another light coming on at a different spot. Mm. And so it, it, that, there was nothing moving. It was just different lights coming on here. Mm. This is the same type of illusion that we get. So we see similarities. So we, we impose this category of the mind on these similarities. And it says, well, X is similar to Y. Therefore, X gave birth to Y, or in some sense, Y evolved from X. Mm. That's a category of the mind that's being imposed on the fossil record. Okay? Now, the question, they, they, that led to the missing link, and then there was the whole issue, well, what's the missing link? Well, the only thing we know about it is that it's missing. Mm. So you've got a category of the mind that is being projected onto reality. And it's beco we've become so used to that, that we accept it. Well, it's not logical. It's not logical to say that. I, I, I again, I would say that the there's there's room there's room to say. I mean, you you've made uh, 
an agreement that evolution occurs, change occurs, adaptation occurs. And I, I concede the fact. No, wait, no, wait a minute. No, no, no. Listen, first of all, there is no problem with evolution. Okay. Good. If now we have to define what we mean by evolution, it yes. seems that there is evidence of evolution in nature. If you have an acorn, it looks very different than an oak. Mm. Okay. It's obviously different. And you could say that the acorn evolves into the oak. Mm -hmm. uh, that's true. But the whole point is that all of the oak is in that acorn in potentia. Okay. It's potentially already there. Okay, now you could extrapolate from this and say that the whole universe was originally there at the beginning. Okay, but if it's at the beginning, then where did it come from? And uh, it had to be created. And this is where you get to the problem. The problem is not evolution. The problem is atheism. And uh, what the problem with evolution and the people, people like Dawkins and Hitchens and that crowd is when they say evolution, what they really mean is God. This is Aquinas ends his proofs of the existence of God by saying, and this all men call God. So even if you don't call it God, it's God by the very nature of what you're saying that it does, because only God can bring something out of nothing. I, I, again, um, I would just reiterate that you know, science is about establishing some causality. Now, we understand, or, 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 this is my understanding of cosmology, okay? That we might be completely wrong. The further we can look back... You need what? Causality. Okay? Causality, you, yes, yes. Yes, right. Right, right I agree. And so, um, I would perhaps suggest that um, the uh, the... Hitchens and I forget what the four horsemen of the uh, apocalypse. I think they called themselves as a sort of tongue-in-cheek pun. But the, um, the, the there has to be an acceptance. They're they're not astrophysicists. They're just working on presumptions. They the data... have to. You have to say that. There is no way to get around saying that because everything had a beginning. There was a time when human beings did not exist. Do you agree to that? Uh, Yes, but I would, okay, I, I so would, I human, would. The human being came into existence. Yes. How does something come into existence? So there's, so in, in, in the basic vernacular, there's a, there's so a transit. Just, just to get back to the original statement here, the, the oak tree is already in existence in the acorn. Mm. It already exists. Mm. The oak tree does not come into existence. It seems that way mm. because it's so different acorn but it's already in the acorn so that's not what we're talking about here how does something come into existence um yes again i would concede that that first that first progenitor is difficult for evolutionary evolutionary theory to um instantiate and prove one because we can't establish the conditions that were around at, at the time so we have to infer and i i think you're no, this is preposterous <laughs> this is completely preposterous do you want to know one of the the dumbest statements probably the the dumbest statement in the history of philosophy mm. it was daniel dennett one of the four uh, atheists mm. and he said the universe created itself ex nihilo or out of something very small mm. 
that has got to be one of the stupidest statements in existence. Okay, first of all, because secondly, if it's if it's out of something very small, it already exists. The universe already exists because there's something there. Mm. First of all, though, if you say the universe had to cr create it itself, well, that means it had to exist before it existed, right? Um, How is that possible? I'm. Do you see? Do you see the problem here? This is a metaphysical problem that. You, that the, these so-called scientists are trying to resolve with biological tools, and you can't do that. It's impossible. So it's like it's like fixing. We need to fix the space shuttle, and uh, we've got uh, uh, all we have is a hammer. Yes, I, I understand the analogy, but I think that there's a way to get at this. I think we're again. We're agreeing. We we agree that there's a there's an objective phenomenon that we have to describe, and I would perhaps put forward the the postulate that um, the cosmology might be off. As I mentioned, the um, their idea of what the Big Bang is might just be artifacts to the limitations of the equipment that yes. they have. Feel free. That's what makes it interesting. So, um, so to expand on that, um, I. I would almost think it a fair statement to say that we don't know the age and extent of the universe. It might just have always been here, right? So I, I, it obviously came from somewhere. I don't. We use uh, these tools and this, and we see the chemistry, and we tr we do try to fill in the gaps between these different ideas okay or, or, or different theorems so the idea that life animate matter as no it's a, a condition of animate matter it's not a prerequisite there's no such thing as dna without a, a, an animal without some type of animate being if you're talking about what amino acids uh that's different but dna only exists in in human beings it's not, uh, not in human beings in animals in something, some type of animal, it cannot exist without that. So it's not a prerequisite. Uh, it's a condition. I, I, I would say that we can, we can see the building blocks of naked DNA in the environment even now. I, I think that's. I, I'm happy to have someone check my sources. But I think that's. Uh, I would be comfortable saying that the same as RNA and you know there, there are intermediates that we see so things like viruses could have been the first stepping zone and it's funny that we would have to be speaking uh, using this example under the current circumstances a, a point of synchronicity uh, in this conscious realm but the, the, there's I think that the, it's it's a looking at the evidence that we can see even in your genome Okay, and other species genome, we can we can see a history of yes, of, yes. Of, of the... I know, I know. We're, we're, this is what you're what you're talking about is God here. This is all God talk. There's no way around it. They're always trying. Whenever they try and talk about some type of change from a, a state of non-existence to existence, it's all God talk. It has to be God talk. And no matter what word you use for it, it's God talk. So, yeah, you can have we, we have viruses now. The whole world is being locked down because of a virus. OK. And when is it going to be? What we know now is that uh, some people get it and some people don't. In other words, this virus has uh, a nature. Mm -hmm. It is what it is. 
Yes. Uh, the human immune system is what it is. And you put these two things together and you have some people get it and some people don't. So the virus, let's assume that it's a weapon. I think okay. it's a weapon. I okay. think it was weaponized by uh, the the bat lady in uh, in China with Fauci money. Yeah. Not just Fauci out. money. It could either got out accidentally or it was deployed deliberately, either oh. way. But it can only function as a virus. It's not a bullet. It's not a bullet. It won't kill you the way a bullet kills you. No. It can only function as what it is. It has an essence. And you're never going to get around that fact. And so you... I wouldn't disagree. I wouldn't disagree with you. I spend much of the time on my channel saying that, you know, as um, disturbing as this whole series of events are, it's still just a virus. What we have to deal with is the fact that they have done gain of function research. So they've basically taken this uh, sample from the wild when probably there was no need to because there would have been very little uh contact between the host animal and the and human beings and like i say there's a whole argument to be had about the industrial science complex and how they're skewing uh the conversation right now and that there's there's many many uh factors here to, to me in my mind it's just funny that we're using viruses as a, as a sort of means to uh, engage in, in in this dialectic but the you're right about the nature but that nature is still unknown because of the elements of gain of function that we can see in it. And I would be I would be remiss in my duty to not tell people that right now, until we fully understand it, you should take at least the minimum of precautions. You shouldn't you shouldn't just be um, disregarding what is basic. God didn't push reality at all. God cre created a reality here. And the reality is the virus. And the virus can only behave like a virus. Even if you modify it, it's going to still be a virus. And that means it's going to affect some people and it's not going to affect other people. It's not magic. That's the whole point. I keep coming back to this notion of being an essence. Okay? You can't get around this idea of being an essence. And they're trying to say, or they, the Darwinists, are trying to say, that there is no essence and there is no being and there's no difference between non-being and being. These are all metaphysical errors mm. that they try and cover over with some type of scientific, biological mumbo-jumbo. Uh, like what this guy, you were talking about the physicist who says you can create, that matter can create itself out of a vacuum or mm. the amino acid can turn itself into DNA. These are all thresholds that cannot be uh, crossed. They, they, the proof lies on the people who are making the claim, not on me. Mm. Prove, show me that this virus can turn into a bullet. Okay. So again, I'm. I, I don't think I'm at odds with what it is that you're saying, and from my personal perspective, I know there's a crisis within science or i see a crisis particularly as we're coming the reductive approach has not worked with trying to explain um consciousness it has worked in being able to take a virus one of these very basic um entity it's not an entity but agent and uh, manipulate it at uh, amino acid by amino acid to give it traits that we know would uh, give it advantage in another environment. Now, 
that's just a virus. That's that's a, one of the simplest agents that we could that's sort of hovering on the line between alive and, and not alive. It's a very gray, shady area. And it, we as the biologist still has a job to explain why why that why that virus is there. Whereas the metaphysical and theological could say, well, this is this is the hand of God pushing creation in this way to and I accept that. I accept that that's one argument, especially when we can't recreate the conditions of the beginning. No. Okay. And I, this applies to many things, but it's in effect, it could also apply to the metaphysical argument as well. Okay. Because there, there's, a, there's ambiguity in the system and we don't know, uh, we don't have all the facts, but, and I, you, uh, you have suggested that we are putting uh, or, or stamping our, our own intellectual okay. uh, stamps onto the evidence and then and then imbuing it perhaps with properties that it doesn't have because yeah. because we're using the current uh, we have a current paradigm and we every like you said everything if you have a hammer everything looks like a nail Okay, so this this is why I'm for trying to find new tools because I think we need to address the science better because th th both the metaphysical, philosophical, religious, and scientific, if you want my opinion, is failing right now. The, the I see the fabric of our right. culture falling apart, and wherever you want to say that this, the subversion is coming from, I think it's something that we can we can at least come to a consensus that we need to find a way through this. And that, in my mind, implies order. The scientific method and the philosophical basis of science, along with the idea of the, uh, the, the metaphysics, the what you call logos and the, uh, the order of nature they these things these things are complementary and these are these are gifts that i think that western civilization has given to the world and we we would be uh we would be neglecting our duty to to not make sure that it keeps adapting to an ever an ever-changing environment and I, I don't know if I've gone off on a bit of a tangent there because we've we're, we've strayed away from consciousness, but uh, I do think the order discussion needs to be looked at from both sides. It's it's not strictly the domain of one side. It's not just the religious side. It, it's there's a there's a scientific component, and that scientific component came from the. Uh, the... Right. Well, this is this is the crucial issue now. The virus is one thing, and then the political manipulation of the virus is another. It's obvious that this virus is to destroy. The purpose is to destroy the economy and prevent Donald Trump from getting elected. That's the weaponization. Well, of the it's virus. having that effect. And absolutely. to say uh, to deny that or to deny that it's being weaponized is simply foolish. It's I, foolish. I agree. So there's one thing of uh, yes. It is a virus. It's not something else. There should be reasonable ways, ways of dealing with the virus. But what we're being subjected to is political in its uh, uh, in its origin and not scientific. Uh, yes, I, I, I agree that, and this is. I'm not for. 
the, the overextension of the, uh, the the political systems that we've put in place that impinge on what I consider our sovereign God-given rights that's between me and the creator, uh, you know, the Lord God, however you, I don't, I don't want to offend you with how I, I would call uh, God, but I, I, and, you know, feel free to correct me, but like I say, I see a higher order consciousness that we should be aiming towards to guide us through difficult times. And I see all the institutions and all the, uh, the, positions of authority failing at this point. There is no part of reality that is not the domain of the creator. I agree. That's because it's implicit in the term creation. The creator determines the being of the creation. And that's so we've expanded that now uh, from the Greek kind of ahistorical perspective to the Christian historical perspective. So that God is the author of human history as well as the author, uh, the creator of the universe. That's indisputable. As soon as you say that, then the next question is, well, what about free, free will? will? Yeah, Does okay. Does man have free will? Mm. Does man have free will? And the answer is yes, of course he does. He has free will because he is a rational creature. You cannot create a rational creature without the ability to choose mm. and the, the ability to choose the good. Uh, if if you have the ability to choose the good, you have the ability to choose evil as well. It's It's... The two sides of the same coin. Mm. So then how do you obviously God cannot choose evil? That's because of the definition of God. So how do you explain evil in this world? How do you explain the Batwoman weaponizing this thing, meddling with creation and creating something that's caused harm throughout all of the world? The answer is God does not will evil, but he tolerates evil. Because he has to tolerate it, because the only way he could remove it is by eliminating reason and free will. And he's not going to do that, because some type of higher good comes as a result of that. So the classic explanation in the Bible, to get to Revelation, is the story of Joseph being sold into slavery. That's evil. Okay, the brothers committed an evil act. They were going to kill him. They sold him into slavery. But that's not the end of the story, because their action is part of God's plan for human history. Mm -hmm. It turns out that God did have a plan here that they didn't know about. And he knew the future. He knew that Israel was going to run out of food. There was going to be a famine. And so he provided for the Israelites by having Joseph become head of the granary in Egypt. Now, this is a plan that the brothers, Joseph's brothers, couldn't possibly have understood when they committed their evil act. But this is the way God takes evil and turns it into good. And that's exactly what Joseph said to his brothers. So the evil that you intended to do to me has been turned by God's power into good. That explains the relationship between God and evil in Mm. the world. Okay. Uh, Again, I wouldn't argue from that from an ethical standpoint um in some way i find comfort from thinking that even with um bad evil taking place that it it could be part of a greater plan but perhaps what i could do right now is pull the pull the discussion because now we've got to the point of free will where we can bring some neuroscience to bear some some of the 
new information that I think needs to be embedded into the uh, the dialogue and uh, discussion that we're having right now. And I would put forward the premise that we can look at the architecture of the brain and the physiology of the brain, and we can make the claim that it is a highly adapted set of networks and systems designed for uh, salience detection. So looking for new things in the environment and then making choices about them. Okay. So even a monkey is able with exposure to the same stimuli, understand that there is a difference between reward amount if it waits longer right so it could easily get a small amount of reward if it just does the action but it knows if it waits it'll get 10 times the reward for holding back no it's uh, not hard no it's not hardwired this is exactly the point choice is a function of reason and reason is part of the soul it's not part of your brain your brain doesn't know anything about reason and I, I, this is where I would disagree that it's hardwired. It's part of your nature. Let me get back. Let me back off here. It depends on what you mean by hardwired. Mm. Usually that means it's part of the mechanism. It's part of the brain. It's part of the physical mechanism. Mm. That's not the case here. You cannot locate choice, reason, or any of these things in your brain. It's not there. Well, we can we can certainly identify with high precision areas of the brain involved in choice, right? Because there are there are disorders of choice, right? That you could you could kind of argue are uh, a causal to evil, and those would be impulse control disorders. Okay, so you lose you lose control of yourself because of emotion or because of some maladaptive. Uh, illness. Um, so the classic and what I work with is Tourette's, where um, they the, the, the people develop a, a lower threshold for engaging in behavior that essentially could be normal in one environment, but maladaptive in another. And we can look at those networks from the cord from the cortex right down to to deep uh, deep motor networks. Uh, limbic meaning emotional networks uh, all the way through the brain that's what I've spent 20 years doing and I, I can make very solid predictions about where I will see activity how it appears I'm sorry, did you say you can look are you saying you can locate where that happens in the brain yes very much and we could go in okay. and surgically alter it right I, I'm not I'm not I, I've said before I'm not denying that you need a brain in order to have a mind mm. I'm just saying that they are two separate things here and you can you can you can manipulate the brain and it will have an effect on your mind. So the this uh, the most obvious example is alcohol. Mm. Alcohol is a physical substance that changes the state of your mind. You feel better. Ever, that's why people drink all the time. It makes them feel better. The world's a better place uh, when you're when you when you take alcohol. It's an illusion, but uh, it's a powerful for feeling. Now, if you're talking about monkeys making choices, they do not. The, you're talking about something that is either programmed into them because they're animals and they have instincts. 
and you can modify these instincts. I agree with that. John B. Watson was a genius when it came to modifying instincts in animals. He could do it all the time. He was a farm boy. He never got over being a farm boy. He loved playing with animals. Mm. Okay, and then he tried to generalize that to human beings, and it doesn't work. Well, it doesn't work really because you got a fundamentally different operating system. Because the so it's what we can see in the neuroscience domain. What we can see in uh, a primate, okay, we can correlate very, very closely to human beings because we use the same systems to make intervention such that we can uh, prevent. So uh, a good example is alcohol. So these uh, areas of the brain where you choose to drink, you make the choice to drink, because we can target them. There is a them. fundamental difference between a monkey and a human being. And, uh, and the, the, the fact that their brains may be similar only emphasizes that fact. This is I, there was I don't know whether you remember Washu Washo the talking monkey. Do you remember this story? I think so. You're well, talking big, about it the... was a big phenomenon in the 1970s. They finally two signing guys, two monkey, people right? found this signing monkey, the sign language yeah. monkey, right? You know what I mean? Yeah. So it was like a big breakthrough because finally we've had taught a monkey how to talk. Well, after they couldn't replicate it in any other monkey, it turns out that the monkey was very receptive to stimulus uh, if he was going to get a banana pill, mm. you know, and he would. I, I know about this, but we had uh, chimpanzees at the Institute. Oh, good. That's, primate, that's primate. exactly what we're talking about. Uh, okay, so Primate Research Institute, where I was, we had uh, chimps that were involved in this symbolic cognitive um communication um it's not it's not a one-off we know they can do it and you know we get into areas about uh the, the you know fundamental differences between the, hu the hominids so human beings and chimpanzees okay. and it, apes it, it, and there's you... no such thing as proto language again i keep coming back to the same principle either it is language or it is not language now that and then we have to define what do we mean by language now I, I, ride, I ride my I ride my bike by the river in South Bend on a regular basis, and there are geese all over the path. And whenever I appear on my bike, the geese start talking to each other. Uh -huh. They all say this. They always say the same thing. They they always say or something uh -huh. like that, which probably means there's guy coming on a bicycle uh -huh. or danger or whatever it is. They're communicating. It's not language though. It's not language. The, the, the goose will never say, I told you not to do this. I told you not to sit there because yesterday this guy came by at eight o'clock in the morning. It's now eight o'clock and he comes by here every day at eight o'clock and you should have known. A goose will never say that because he doesn't have that power of abstraction. The mind cannot, the goose mind cannot perceive that. The language cannot uh, express it. And there is only one being that has language and that is the human being no other no other species the species they can communicate rudimentary things but they can't talk well they can't they don't have the human language so again i would that say it's totally unique I, I would say that um the fact that you recognize that other species can communicate 
a priori means that they have a proto-language and that proto-language increases in sophistication as you as you move up in complexity and it's it's inherently obvious that you would have a language if you went to the amazon you could and that person had never been in contact with civilization before and you stood in front of that individual you would be able to do rudimentary communication with that person because that person would understand if you're being threatening or you're or you're um being defensive there there's implicit um semantic behavior that another can read and there's there's studies that, again from primates we can show that through tool use okay that the that we can understand in a way how the uh, the right. mind-brain-body connection is occurring and how it extends into the environment such that a tool becomes a part of the body itself. And a, a, so a good example is someone that gets really skilled at something, whether it's an instrument or, you know, we see someone who's skilled <clears throat> and that helps instantiate the, the, the symbolic uh, meaning behind an action and then that action can be copied by others in the environment and so when you've got something as sophisticated as a non-human primate they will begin to copy each other so we see things like tool use and we see things like um, them them communicating intention Okay, and also behaviors about around who's going to be an alpha, who's going to cooperate. They get very sophisticated societal um, structures within their within their groups on the basis of proto language. And I would argue that you could do the same with our this language. Is, this is a this is a category of your mind which you are imposing on beings that existed hundreds of thousands of years ago i'm there, not so what sure is the basis of this in reality I'm you're not... speculating you're uh, there there is no basis for this in reality so other than what what we know about geese and monkeys and what we know about geese and monkeys is that they do not communicate that it's it's an equivocation to say that that's language in the same sense that we have language no so I'm, the... I'm going i'm going i'm going to make I, I'm going to make an, a, a, an even stronger case here. Okay. I'm going to make the strongest possible case, and I am saying that language cannot evolve. Okay. So I believe that some things can evolve. If God wants it to happen, then it can happen. The problem there is not God uh, evolution. The problem is atheism. That's the problem with Darwinism. Okay. So I'm saying that that language has to come into existence. Completely, completely. So that doesn't mean, that means that the first person, it, there has to be two people. And one person says, hello, how are you? Mm -hmm. And the other person says, fine, thank you. How are you? Mm -hmm. That's what has to happen. If it doesn't happen, it's not language. That cannot evolve. You cannot evolve to that point. Language has to be complete in two separate individuals at the same time and i don't see how that is possible through some type of random evolution well so we're not talking random we're not, we're not just talking uh organisms just popping into existence i would argue there's a chain and we can track that and we can see behaviors that are analogous especially in hominids that use hands but i have a, i have a simpler 
uh, metaphor that we could use for language evolving. And that's the language we're using right now. Yes. You're not speaking to me in a uh, Shakespearean um, dialect or, oh, I wish we did still speak like Dickensian or in uh, English and we were a bit more polite uh, as it were but i would i would make the point that you can track our written languages back right. to proto languages that's that's a legitimate area of study and so you can see where languages have changed and they've changed as a consequence of adaption to new elements in the environment so as the as the society has got more technologically based and and uh, sophisticated the right. uh, the the language has changed and so um it, it would be impossible no, no we had the language the language was perfectly capable of this discussion the only thing that's changed is the instrument of communication we can now communicate across long distances through artificial electronic means mm. but the the dis, the discussion we are we are having right now could have taken place in england at the time of darwin it should have taken place then because but no one was smart enough to do it at that point mm. and it was all politicized by the huxley family because they wanted a justification for capitalism it could have taken place uh between aristotle and the two of us because there uh, he was the man who came up with the fundamental principles mm. so i'm saying that there was and, and language does evolve so you're right thank you but there's a certain point in which it cannot evolve. It cannot because the beginning is always different than after something is in existence. Getting to the beginning is different. Aquinas said, Aquinas said, creation is not change. We're talking about change. If you're talking about creation, it's not change. It's fundamentally different than change. That's why beginnings are fundamentally different. The, there is only one, and I'm going to jump here from uh, metaphysics to revelation uh, because it's important. There is only one coherent explanation of creation, and that is the beginning of Genesis. And the, the beginning of Genesis is in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. So you've got once you talk about the beginning, in the beginning you're talking about a completely different realm than the realm that we're in. Okay? As soon as you're talking about the beginning, you have to bring God into the picture. Because in the beginning, something went from non-being to being. And the only the only way that can happen is through God. Mm. Now the evolutionists always say natural selection when they mean God. They they always personify natural selection when they're really talking about God. That is the only possibility. Now, that means throughout in any of these transitional steps, whenever you go from non-being to being, God has to be involved because that's the only possibility. Well, like I say, the um, the, the creation event, so its emergence, okay, I'm, I'm agreeing with you that there has to be something unique about that time. And I think both disciplines can aid each other in defining what, what that is. Now, let's, get the, let's just get the uh, Darwinism issue dealt with. Okay, from my own perspective, I do believe that 
uh, Darwinism as being red in uh, tooth and nail and this hyper right. hyper competition yes. has been distorted and the uh, the Randian pursuit of uh, selfishness as a virtue I think has been a disaster for mankind I don't um, I, I can see all kinds of ethical and moral issues with that particular a viewpoint that that strays into libertarianism and uh, the uh, the global uh, global capitalism, much like uh, global uh, socialism. But these th these are independent, and I grant you this this idea of the creation event. That's not really the domain of science. That's something that I would say right. the, the theologians but, yeah, have to do. This, yes, God is. I mean, I would use the word logos. But I mean, God, this is what St. John said in the beginning. So he's he's based it on Genesis. It's just a different version now. In the beginning, there was Logos. Logos was with God. Logos is God. Mm -hmm. So God is Logos. God is, in a sense, consciousness. Mm -hmm. That's that's what he is. Yes. And so I, I think that that's a hypothesis that we can work around. OK, that if, if we can accept that there's a... Um, objective basis for uh, God as this super consciousness, this super entity that um, is, uh, it's the, the fab, it, it becomes the encompassing fabric and it has a, and what the geometry of that encompassing fabric is, is going to be a topic of discussion for physicists and scientists and theologians, again, for, I think, millennia right. still. Um, but there's, there's, there's right. no reason why we can't have the discussion about uh, the, the, the need for uh, new ways, new ways right. of looking at current problems. And I honestly believe that, in, that the way to move forward to give people hope is to focus on the fact that there is a, uh, that, that there are tools available to them. But by taking by taking time to study the disciplines to to be to become a man of reason, logos. No, I don't have my own channel, but other people can put me on. They oh yeah, I'm can sorry. Put I'm me on their channel. I'm sorry about that, but yes, I can. Uh, I can put you on uh, my channel, and uh, yeah, I realize we're getting to the end of this, and I'm going to uh, I'm going to uh, wrap up. But I, I want to say thank you very much for your time. I really think we were just starting to get to covering some crucial groundwork as to what is, you know, language plays into what nature, uh, or language plays into nature and nature is consciousness. And we're beginning to develop the mental constructs of what that means and, and its implications. And I, I it's a, a heartfelt plea from myself that the especially considering the, the the degree to which I see every institute seems broken right now and so one one side needs the other to to guide us through this mess so whether it's the spinning off into what I would call superstitious mysticism um, which could happen with the theology or going into this um, corrupt industrial uh, scientific industrial military complex is is the other 
extreme. I think there has to be a middle a middle way, a new way of describing these phenomena that that give back to people their right. their importance as human beings, their um their 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 role right. in the universe yeah. in the universe right. and 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 the planet. And again, um I want to I don't want to take too much of your time. I hope we can continue the 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 dialogue at, at another time. It was very interesting for me, and uh, it's good to it's good to talk. And uh, yeah, I hope we can uh, continue the dialogue because I really think we were just starting to get to the meat and potatoes of the right. uh, the problem here. So uh, again, uh, Dr. Jones, thank you very much uh, for your time, right. and uh, I'll I'll send you the links uh, for the uh, for the edited version. So. Uh, thank you very much, and I will uh, I'll hopefully see you in the next one. So uh, take care. I do too. I do too. I agree with you. And the, the um, we have to expand our notion of science to include metaphysics and philosophy because that's the medieval understanding of it. Uh, that was it's still the German understanding of it with the word der Wissenschaft. They have terms like literaturwissenschaft, you know, which is the